Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me each week as we explore the minds of living composers. We talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is composer and flautist Brent Michael Davids. Brent is a concert and film composer and a citizen of the Mohican Nation. Brent studied at Northern Illinois University, where he earned a BM in music composition. He went on to earn a master's comp- in composition at Arizona State University. In 2015, he premiered his opera Purchase of Manhattan. Brent is an active participant in the First Nations Composer Initiative and has also served as composer in residence with the Native American Composers Apprenticeship Project. Brent Michael Davids, welcome to Movable Dough. Hey, great to be here. So I understand that you were born in Wisconsin, later moved to Chicago. So I'm interested about your musical upbringing. Did you did you have a musical family when you were growing up? Uh, Yeah, partly. Yes and no. Uh, my mom was very musical, choir director, played violin, sang, uh, and she's uh, she's non-native. She's um, English, uh, okay. direct descended from the Mayflower, actually. Oh wow! Um, yeah, her her last name is descended directly from Edward Doty on the Mayflower. Her name is Doty, mm. um, but my dad is Mohican, so I'm half and half, and. Um, and he's not, he wasn't very musical, <laughs> admittedly. <laughs> he, he was kind of tone deaf, couldn't really carry a tune or anything. So did you um, start on flute or did you start somewhere else? No. Um, uh, my mom forced me to take piano lessons and I sucked at it, so I quit right away. <laughs> but um, it was in elementary school that I got interested in music. The, there was a band director from junior high school that used to go around to the elementary schools and show instruments. Like, here's a horn, here's a flute, here's a clarinet, here's a trombone. And I was like, oh, a trombone. I couldn't understand how the slide worked. You know, it looked like magic. Like, how does it, how does the tube get bigger and smaller? And I wanted to find that out, you know, as a, however old you are in elementary school, ten, nine or 10 years old, nine uh-huh. years old. So like, oh yeah, I want to play that. So, um, I started taking lessons on a, on a rented, you know, junky old trombone and and started trombone. And then I picked up bass trombone and tuba and other instruments in, in high school and junior high and high school and then started composing in high school. Oh, wow. Uh, the band director taught music theory and I talk, took two years of music theory in high school, proficiency out of all of that music theory in college and, um, and went right into composing. Um, I didn't know you could compose until I got to high school. That's the first time I even thought about it. I'll go to the band room and pull a, a piece of music out of the these little cubbyhole um, folder racks that they had in the band room, and I'd pull the music out and play. And it never occurred to me that that people were writing it. And I thought it came from some <laughs> I don't know where it came from. It didn't even cross my mind. Magical like where is source. this? Yeah, <laughs> they're just buying it. You, you go to the store, the music store, and buy music. Great! What a wonderful <laughs> world this is. Um, but once I started to, yeah, it's dumb. And when you think about it, it's like, uh, you know, somebody growing up in Chicago, like I, you know, I was born in Wisconsin, but at the age of like two left here. So, mm-hmm. I mean, at his two year old, I can't be held responsible for too much, <laughs> right. you know, about the world. Uh, but uh, it's like, you know, growing up in Chicago, 
um, and going to the store and buying milk. You know, that's where milk comes from, right. the store. It's in the carton in the store. Um, so it's like that. I didn't really, it didn't grasp it. You know, it was a little slow on the uptake, as we say. But once I figured it out, like I, I learned music theory and uh, basically 18th century counterpart point where you're learning like to write like Mozart, basically. And, um, but it, it's, it's how to put chords together too, like chord progressions. What, what kind of chords follow other chords to create tensions? There's certain tensions that lead a certain way, and then you mm -hmm. get a repose and a tension that pulls you one direction or another. That's inherent in that, that kind of uh, progression of major and minor harmony, which is, it still works today. I mean, all the pop music on the radio, chords, folk songs, they're all major and minor harmony. Basically, 18th century counterpoint. Um, so it still works, um, even though a lot of people and myself have moved away from it yeah. um, in some respects. I'm not a purist in that sense. Like, I I dabble in pretty much everything. But, I, you know, when I got to college, I found out you could study privately with a composer, well, you know, like, you you know i only thought you could do that in like piano lessons and i had bad memories of that <laughs> it's like woo but i i was like yeah okay i can see this and i started studying with a composer and then uh in my undergraduate um uh i had this little um jewish guy with a goatee beard um little tiny man his name is paul o steg and um he was brilliant uh for me he was brilliant um teacher to have he um took me through my paces and i came out of northern illinois university uh sort of as a stylist you know composing in the style of everybody mm. um what he did is he he asked me to compose like every week or so i would have to study a different composer you know what they did how they composed if they were you know using techniques that that were different or instruments that they made or whatever I would have to study their music and then write something in the style of them. Hmm. And I had to go through my whole four years of undergraduate training with no repeats, no repeats. Wow. So I became a stylist. He forced me to learn this style and that style and this technique and that technique. And every week I would be thinking, you know, I'm going to be an original composer. And I'd come in and go, oh, that sounds, that's interesting. That sounds like something that I heard, you know, so-and-so do, and I want you to go listen to this composer now. And he'd send me off to the library to listen to someone else. I'm like, I thought I, again, I'm not original again. You know, <laughs> it forced me to, it, it confronted this idea in my head. I was going to be like the, the best composer that ever lived and that sort of thing. And, and I'm good. And, uh, um, you know, I have certain skills that I'm really good at. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it's, that those dreams got shot down really fast. And, uh, but I became a good stylist and, and it suits me well for other, for pretty much everything I write. Um, sure. I'm very versatile, very trained, very highly skilled. Um, so even like scoring films, I can pretty much write anything, you know, I was even a jazz player and, and all sorts of different styles, native American music styles. Um, yeah. So I wanted to, to ask you about native American styles, because I know that you have made that a, a large part of your career. Uh, as you were growing up, were you were you in sort of Mohican culture? Were there people around you uh, influencing you in that way when you were growing up? Or is that something that came later? Well, my dad was raised here, born and raised, lived on the reservation. That's where I am right now, as on okay. the reservation. Um, 
um, living on the same land that he grew up on. In fact, um, different house, same, same plot. Okay. Um, but so, you know, for my dad and all of our relatives, you know, everybody, you know, all the, uh, all the women in the tribe, we, everybody calls each other auntie, <laughs> tons of aunties. <laughs> they could be cousins, the second, third cousins, twice or removed or whatever. And everybody's an auntie. Uh-huh. Um, but I was here, back here a lot. You know, we had uh, summer activities. We'd come back to the reservation all the time, even from Chicago. It's a three, four hour drive or so. And we'd come spend lots of time here. So, um, yeah, I had, you know, such as it is, I did have, you know, contact in the tribe right as well as and then you know the reason i grew up in chicago is because dad wanted the you know he wanted the the children in the family to get a a better education than here there's nothing here you know we're out Uh in like a very rural community education level is uh you know it's not as as uh, accomplished as being in chicagoland um in a huge school district um my high school had four thousand students in it it's a so, big school. <laughs> yeah. My graduating class was like a, a thousand people. So we had electives, you know, like going to high school was like going to college. I could study pretty much anything I wanted to uh, and choose from a bunch of electives that were offered. And that was in high school. So that's how I ended up studying music theory because yeah. it was offered as an elective and I took it and I found out I was good at it. So that sort of led me on my way. And ever since then, I've never looked back. And so if you would ask me, like, have you always thought about being a composer? The answer would be no. Because, again, it didn't even occur to me before. Right. I was, like, really clueless, like, what, composer? Oh, yeah. Um, what is that? <laughs> you know, I don't know. But ever since then, I, I, I sort of picked it by default because I didn't know anything else I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was also, you know, one of the few Native people in the entire school. Like, there's a thousand people in the school, and hardly nobody is Native American at all. Like, huh you know, other cultures. So I met all sorts of different people and, and that was good. You know, like I, I'm really, I'm glad that I grew up in an environment like that with, it was very diverse, you know, cosmopolitan. Right. So I met, I rubbed shoulders with all sorts of other people from other places. And even in my composer career, now I've traveled all over the place, you know, all through the UK, England, you know, even through Russia and, and different places. Um, and, that helps give you a world perspective. You know, like if you're in native culture and you grew up in native culture, and if, if that's the only thing you know, you think that's the center of the world, you know, like, right. but then you go to somewhere else and you think, oh, look at this culture. And that's so old, you know, that, <laughs> you know, you went to Sophia Bagaria once for a recording project. And, and it's like, there's, you know, cities and cultures there that are like six, 7,000 years old. And like, whoa, you know, that's like the, uh, Old Oribe village in in and on First Mesa, you know, one of the oldest, longest established communities in America, right? Or mm-hmm. or Acoma Sky City in New Mexico, um, the oldest pueblos still operating today. You know, six seven thousand year old wow. cities that are still operating. You know, the oldest in America. They have those in in Europe, all over the place. Old places like that. Yeah. So when people think about Native American music, so they they probably have a stereotypical sound probably from movies in their head. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what do you think people most misunderstand about native American music? Uh, sort of a lot of things like the stereotypes are many. Like one thing is like, it's all sounds the same. You know, that's mm-hmm. an old one. They hear some native singing or song and that sound, they can't tell the difference between that and another one. Right. And there are differences, um, different stylistic traits. 
um, and, and also native people themselves are all the same. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, in America, anyway, we have people coming here, colonizing the Americas. It's a big genocidal movement, kill all the Indians, take all the land, take the resources. People got rich. You look at all the, the wealthy, like the barons, the early, you know, the, the railroad, what is that guy? The railroad barons and the, the water barons and everybody else who took all this land and, um, and the resources of that belonged to native people before and got rich, you know, um, we suffered at that point, you know, the native people with right. genocide. So we're all native genocide survivors. You know, we're like, you know, 0.1% of the population today in America, where later, I mean, earlier, you know, before colonization, we were more closer to like 100% <laughs> of the people here. So it's, uh, it's really, um, that informs everything. Like we are survivors and there are stereotypes that have, have occurred all the way through and they affect music is the same way. So mm -hmm. if you like right now, there's a, I forgot who said it, if it was Howard Zinn or somebody said, you know, it's an United States of amnesia. It's like, we don't want to look at our past. You know, we're, there's this idea of a shiny city upon a hill, which comes from, I think, John Winthrop's uh, journals, the first governor of Massachusetts Bay call this America a shiny city upon a hill. And you've seen every president quote that ever since then, you know, like um, Herbert Walker H. Walker H. Book, uh, what his name is, <laughs> like <laughs> Bush Sr., his um, thousand points of light, you know, and all that. Uh, it's the same story that America is like the bringing democracy to the rest of the world. And, uh, and we have this, we're on this sacred mission and to bring democracy everywhere. Uh, but really, the whole country is built on genocide and massive land theft and resource theft that no one wants to talk about. So it's swept under the rug culturally. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to teach it in school. There's a big push now to not even teach critical race theory, which is not taught in grade school. It's taught in colleges, universities. There's that push to sort of wipe away the past and, and preserve this purity of America that is really fake. It's a fake story of America. And... That occurs in music too. Like there's a, an understanding, and I think it's just naivete. Like people don't learn about Native American cultures in school, let alone learn about Native American music in school. Right. So how are they gonna know what these differences are and where they come from? So I think most of my life I've been confronted with that, like how to be a Native person in school and deal with these, the misinformation and the the disinterest in it because no one has learned it in school. You know, it's like me not learning about music comp composers until I reached a certain point and then the light right. bulb went off. People are that way with Native Americans too. They might, they don't know anything about them or you don't even think about other people being on this continent before them, you know, mm -hmm. and it might not occur to them. And that's just purely natural. You know, that's education and what we should be focusing on teaching right. and whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's fighting all those stereotypes. Because um, the the brief history of it is that, you know, in at first contact, we were devils. You know, the, the woodlands, like in the time of John Winthrop, this is also in his journals, like he was describing Indians as being devils running around in nature. And nature was seen as evil. You know, it was very malevolent. Mm -hmm. um, how are these Indians surviving? Oh, look how comfortable they are. And they're just wearing a bunch of skins and they're living happily out there in this evil wilderness. They must be devils too, you know, though, is that sort of thing. And and then later you get, you know, 
Henry David Thoreau and his nature walks and he's cataloging flowers and writing and everybody's like, oh, nature is wonderful and, and pure and, and beautiful and, and benevolent. You know, it's, it's, it's a good nature to be close to nature and Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass. And there's this consciousness where people are thinking nature is a good thing now. But you've got this uh, history of Native Americans. We don't want to remember them anyway because we stole all the resources and killed them, tried to kill them all off. And they're not much of the population percentage now anyway, so we can pretty much ignore them, and which is what happens. And then, but we can't lose that, you know, this savage epitaph that we have. So we became noble savages. You know, we're savages, but we're the ones that are close to nature now, so we're noble. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the stereotype that grew up later. And now there's a new one, which is the spiritual Indian. Like, they're, we're close to nature. We're all like, you know, that we have the creator who is like a supernatural force pervading everything. And, and that's kind of, you know, you, you've got like, you know, plastic shamans and medicine men and running, you know, sweat lodges for money and, and all sorts of crystals and things like that that people are selling and, uh, you know, buying into it. Where I think, you know, personally, I think our best hope for the, the globe, you know, in a, in a communal way, I'd rather be a citizen of the planet first and foremost. Like I, uh, I find everyone's story to be really interesting. Also the native stories too, like the, the story of how the, the America grew on the back of a giant turtle or whatever. But anyway, it's all fascinating to me. And, that, <laughs> that's, and it informs my music too. Like I'm very interested in all the different stories and modern science and, and physics and Sure. So I know, actually, in addition to being a composer, I know you're also sort of a, an instrument inventor. And you've invented several different things, bird calls, mm-hmm. crystal flutes, uh, water-based instruments. I'm, I'm really interested in the crystal flute. So sort of what is the, the sound quality difference between a crystal flute and a standard flute? What was the yeah. purpose of that invention? Um, well, that, that, that came out of my studying of in electronics. Like I took electronic courses with... Um, where you can invent interesting sounds that that uh, say they, they don't occur naturally in nature. You can have sounds, you can create sounds that, you know, go below your own hearing level or above your own hearing level and invent like sine waves and square waves and things like that that do different, create, you know, turn knobs and dials and you get and, and sounds that you don't. Yeah. But I uh, I really like that freedom to do that but it was a very lonely kind of life i remember having concerts where there were only like uh actual concerts we'd go sit in the auditorium and there were two s- speakers on stage no human beings and we would listen to people's tape pieces and i was like this is not for me so i wanted to get back into uh participating with other human beings and, and telling music together and doing things that uh together um, so I went back to acoustic music, um, pretty much from electronics and, but I liked the freedom to invent new sounds and that's what got me into inventing new mm. sounds. And of course, when I was studying, one of the composers I studied was, um, uh, Harry Parch. So then I learned about cells and cellular writing and inventing instruments and all of his like cloud chamber and these big, you know, xylophones and things he was inventing to get all these microtones. Um, but I, I was fascinated with that. And I was also really fascinated with George Crumb. Uh, he was using conventional instruments, but he was also adding things like little stones and bird calls and things like that and extended techniques on the instruments. And um, I was really fascinated with him too. 
and also the visualness of his notation, like doing picture notation that looks like pictures, you mm -hmm. know, rather than just straight um, staves going across the page. So um, I don't know, they, they, the flutes and all the instruments are an outgrowth of that. I was just really searching for new, new kinds of sounds. So to answer your question, though, a crystal flute, it's actually quartz. It's not lead okay. crystal, it's quartz. But it sort of sounds in between like what you think a wood flute sounds like. So if you got a really soft wood flute that's made out of something like cedar, it's got really wispy. It doesn't have a lot of tonal center to it. It's very soft, you know, sound. Uh, harder woods, like I, my set of, I have a set of flutes that I use to perform. They're tuned, especially um, in my own tuning. They're tuned like a Western scale, so I can perform with orchestras. Right. Um, so they're tuned to like A440. I can play scales. I can play chromatically and diatonically on the flutes. I have two, a big one and a smaller one that I can play pretty much anything on. And they're, they're made especially so I can do like film scores and play flute concertos and things like that with orchestra and choruses mm -hmm. and everything. But um, it's harder wood. So, you know, it's made, they're made out of mahogany. So I can get a much richer, um, more focused tone out of those instruments because they're a harder wood. Um, so you imagine that, and then you imagine the sound of a metallic flute, like one of our, you know, manufactured flutes right. out of, you know, whatever, the, you know, they make, I don't, they make flutes out of titanium and platinum and gold and all sorts of silver and things, uh, but some kind of metal flute. And those flutes play closer to a sine wave. Like if you were going to just play a sine wave in the studio, it's very smooth, mm -hmm. pure kind of sound. And that's, uh, and they even have more of a, a clear tonal center. And when you hear the notes and played on a metal flute, if you can imagine that, and then imagine the wispiness and airiness and unfocused sound of like a wood cedar flute or whatever, the coarse flutes are kind of in between. Hmm. Like a, a wood flute can play like an octave and maybe a couple notes more than that. And then it goes out of tune and it can't function. So it really has a limited range of ability. A manufactured, you know, orchestral flute has a couple octaves and more, you know, of a range and a very focused, you know, clear tone. The crystal flutes have a narrower range than that, but they're not as low as a wood flute. So I can get, you know, almost two octaves out of my flute, not quite, maybe an octave and a half mm. out of my quartz flutes, you know, and then they go out of tune and, and become dysfunctional. Mm. So... And all, by all standards, they're kind of rest in between there somewhere. And I can play them that way. Like I can play uh, with a wispy, airy quality on the wood, on the crystal flutes, the quartz flutes, and make it sound like a wood flute. So I can do like a faux wood flute sound using the quartz, but I cannot get that sound of the metallic flute, you know, out of the quartz flute. It just has its own kind of quality to it. All right. So I've got one more question for you before we take a quick break. Okay. So who is your favorite living composer that you know today that you think we should all go check out? I, just, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any favorites, really. I mean, there's there's people that are doing really interesting things. Like, you know, my friend Raven Chacon just won the Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. um, I've known him for years. He's teaching the, the program, the educational program that I started at uh, Arizona but Raven is Navajo, so he's teaching that program now, and okay. I've known him for years. Um, and he's writing more like noise music and experimental music. His notation is very experimental. 
Um, so I really like what he's doing and it's fun and it's fun for the performers too. So it's, it's, it's really an interesting thing. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Brent's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Brent Michael Davids. So we're going to start today with in Wisconsin Woods. So this piece premiered back in 1992, was recently included in the Wisconsin Composers Project 2020. Uh, so it's played on your signature quartz bass flute and incorporates singing and spoken word uh, from a poem by Susan Powers. Uh, how would you describe to someone what this piece is about? Um, yeah, it's based on a poem, and she goes by Mona now, Mona Susan oh, Powers. Okay. Um, that's new since the piece was written. She wasn't doing that, but now she is. Um, the uh, it's a it's she and I were both at this um, what is it Atlantic Center for the Arts? Is it New Smyrna Beach mm -hmm. uh, in Florida? I think that's it. I'm, I might be don't quote me. I might be remembering <laughs> that wrong. But we were both down there studying with um, some native uh, uh, you know mentors, and um, we had to do projects. So this is a project that uh, that we did. It's a poem that she wrote about. Um, a guy who's he he's been adopted out of his own tribe he's um ho-chunk or what we used to call winnebago now they call themselves ho-chunk and he went off in the woods um searching for his identity because he had been disassociated from the tribe his dad died his last link to finding his identity so he went into the woods searching for his dad's grave and when he got there he saw that there's this huge tree growing in his father's grave right out of the middle of it so then he has this sort of connection to the tree and then the tree changes shape and has you know, different forms and he thinks about the tree in different ways and and through it all he sort of comes to re-understand what it means to be a, a ho-chunk again a winnebago um and so um i wrote that using the sound effects and and singing and playing and whispering and 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 speaking and performing it all with the quartz based flute to try and get those feelings and emotions across. And that's basically what this piece is. It was first premiered there. I think it's New Smyrna Beach. All right. Well, we're going to listen here to a performance by Brent Michael Davids playing his quartz flute in Wisconsin woods. father is heretic pine. <laughs> <laughs> 
His ashes grown to needles in Wisconsin woods. I visited the grave and found him risen in bark. He will not wash away. I smeared his heart's sap on my fingers. He will not wash away. Perched in a silver birch tree, tiny birds covered him like a feathered quilt. He was chewing fronds of fern. to keep his teeth sharp and white. I saw him tremble like a bear. Freeze! Like a deer. Withdraw like a turtle into his shiny bones. rang on either side of my head. Where he shook them like rattles. City brother, he teased. Welcome to this old universe.
All right, our next piece today is The Uncovered Wagon. This piece for SATB Choir, sung in Mohican, was originally commissioned for Chanticleer. So I understand that you feature three different American Indians uh, singing styles. Could you talk about these styles and what you wanted to say with this piece? Yeah, um, the idea for this piece was sort of a takeoff on, I was a commenting on this old film. There's this old film, and I think it's an old like John Ford picture. Again, don't quote me on that, but it was called The Covered Wagon. And it's about this group of European settlers uh, coming into the Platte River Valley uh, where there were supposedly um, free for the taking. You know, there are no Indians there. But of course there were. <laughs> so this this was my take. Like I was, that's why it's called the uncovered wagon. I mm. was uncovering an alternative view of the same right. sort of situation. Um, so there's a hymn quote in there, a particularly racist hymn uh, called Faith of Our Fathers. Um, and it's sung one half step away from like one, the, the hymn might be an F and then the background that goes with the hymn is an E. So it's they're half a step apart, which gotcha. gives it an eerie way of listening to the hymn. But then I also incorporated um, different styles of hymn singing, um, I mean, uh, native singing in there too. So you got a Northeastern style which is a little quicker that goes through. Then there's like a, what we call a skip dance um, kind of song. It's a dance song, but it's got a skip beat in it. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it goes, goes sort of one way and then it skips kind of a triplet figure. And then you're on the, if you were dancing left, right on the foot, like, you know, one left, right, left, right, dun, 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 right, left, right, left. It puts, when you're dancing, it puts you on a different foot on the downbeat. Mm -hmm. at, when you reach the end of the phrase. So we call it a skip skip song, skip beat song. Um, then, and it also has like planes, uh, a plain style song, and they're all three going together. So you hear them independently at first and get a good, you know, get a good sound of that in your ear. And then another one is added in there. And then a third one is added in there. And by the end of it, you can hear all three songs going at the same time and it's sort of like juggling these three songs together um, at the end. So that was kind of tricky. It's like, it, like a compositional puzzle. Like how can you get three different songs, really different songs, a skip song, which changes its beat and all this and how to get them to work together, Right. you know, hang together. That was the compositional trick. Uh, but yeah, this is one of my favorite choral pieces that I've written. And it's very unique, I think. All right. Well, I encourage my listeners to try to find those three styles working all together with the uncovered wagon performed here by Microcosmos.
And lastly today, we're going to turn to tinnitus quartet for string quartet. For those of my listeners who are unsure what tinnitus is, it's a constant ringing, buzzing, or crackling sound coming from within the ear. Now, I understand that this piece is autobiographical for you and that tinnitus is something that you suffer with, correct? Yeah, that's true. I'm hearing it right now. (laughs) No one else can, but I do. So did this piece help you work through some of the frustrations with tinnitus? Um, Yeah, it, yeah, it, uh, it did. I mean, I, I sort of worked through those on my own without writing the music. Um, mm-hmm. By the time I was writing the music, then I, w- I was ready to share that those ideas. Uh-huh. Um, I first realized that I had tinnitus because I was uh, like camping and I was laying on my my left side on a pillow or whatever, camping pillow. And I, I remember hearing how quiet it was outside, you know, like, oh, what a quiet night this is, you know, and then I t- rolled my head over and then I, all of a sudden I heard crickets and I was like, uh oh. Why am I hearing crickets in one ear and not the other? And I realized that in my right ear, I was hearing a tone. I was Mm. masking it. My brain was masking the tone because it was there all the time. It's like, you know, my brain is like, I don't want to hear this anymore. So it it pretends that it's not there. Um, So I was tricking myself into thinking it wasn't. But once I heard it was there, then there was no going back. I heard it and I couldn't get rid of it. And uh, so then I ended up. Uh, being all frustrated and kind of depressed and blue and um, depressed about it. And then I, I started to read up, you know, read up, get trained up about it. And I was tested and, you know, it's permanent damage. I don't have any like thing they can fix, you know, it's permanent. So um, 
I reverse engineered the situation that I found and discovered it. Like it, I figured if I, if, if it's in the same range as crickets, these crickets, I went and recorded a bunch of crickets and I looped them into like seven hours or eight hours of crickets. So then I can put it on, I have a little, like one of those little nanopods and I can put in a, a little speaker and play it sure. near me, almost like people use sound machines, you know, or, or white noise or pink noise or brown noise or whatever. So they can help sleep or listen to ocean wave sounds, or whatever. I can use crickets because it, it plays in the same range as my tinnitus, but then I'm listening to crickets again right? Uh, to try and sleep. And it helps me actually calm and go to sleep and I can kind of help my brain get around it. So, and I work that into the composition. So the composition is my frustrations at first discovering that I had uh, this tone and then the emotions of going through it and all oh, what's going on. And then at the end, it kind of ends with, um, you know, cricket sounds. And I put a tinnitus tone into the work. So it's a four, right. it's a four, it's a quartet, four players, but at every moment, uh, one player has to play this high A sound that I hear. So, um, you know, like a, a high overtone, a harmonic. Um, so that means uh, compositionally it was tricky because I had to produce the sound of a quartet, but only using three players at one time. Right. So there's a lot of double stop writing and it sounds fuller, but there's actually only three people playing at one time because one person is playing the tone. And I move the tone around to to make it more democratic and give everyone a chance <laughs> to play, you know. Three or four like, second violinist to yeah. sit there and play the same note. <laughs> you, the concert master, gets to play a tone the entire piece. <laughs> no, thank you. Um so and that's this piece, you know, and then at the end you hear crickets at the end and then the tone eventually disappears. And I remember in one of the interviews, the cellist, um, Joshua Gendel is, is the, the person, uh, the Moreau Quartet is playing this piece. They commissioned it. Um, and he said that at the end of every concert, they, there was this long silence. They'd finished playing and then the audience would like wait. They would pause after it was over because they were just waiting. They enjoyed listening to that tone go away because they'd been hearing the tone all the way through the entire piece. Right. And I remember having like spouses, you know, their wives and husbands, spouses come up to me and say, you know, I never could explain to my spouse what this is, this affliction, this tinnitus until we heard your piece. Like it, it, it gives the people who don't have tinnitus, it gives them a chance to hear what it's like to go to a concert and hear music when you have your tone going all the way through the whole thing. So um, it's just a small, you know, facsimile uh you know to let people in on the secret i guess like what it's really like all right well we are going to listen to the miro quartet playing the tinnitus quartet <laughs>
So Brent, if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you located online? Where's the best place to look? Um, several places. I think my main site though is, is uh, filmcomposer.us. That's my main site. You can get everywhere else from there. There's other links to get to other sites from there. But Okay. Uh, are you on social media at all? Oh yeah, I have a Facebook. Yeah. I have a Twitter, but I don't ever, I don't really use it very much. So (laughs) I also have an Instagram, but there's nothing there. Like it's it's all completely empty. So you can follow me there if you want to. All right. Well, Hey, listeners out there, make sure that you go on uh, iTunes or whatever podcast you uh, provider you're using. Please leave us a review. Uh, Please like and subscribe to the podcast. It helps the algorithm helps get the podcast out in front of more people. Well, Brent, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. It's been a great pleasure to get to know you. Yeah, thank you so much. My guest today was composer Brent Michael Davids. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>